Welcome back. Here we are, week two of our Fall Humanities 101 term on storytelling. For those of you who don't yet recognize our sweet voices, I am Lisa Prinz. And I'm Kendra Cowley. We are the coordinators of Humanities 101, or HUM, and are part of a team that includes an incredible intern, Morningstar, Willier, and four fabulous volunteers, Anne, Jay, Bobby, and Claudia. For those that don't know, HUM offers free non-credit university level courses open to anyone who wants to learn, regardless of previous education or background. There's no application process, just come as you are. We usually meet in real life together, but due to COVID, we've partnered with CJSR 88.5 FM and are broadcasting HUM through the radio every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. If you want more information or to participate in activities and story sharing, check out our blog at hum101onair.wordpress.com or give us a call or text at 587-709-5472. If you don't have access to a computer and or the internet, let us know and we can get you all the things we're posting online. Before moving forward, we just want to remind folks that this is all new to us. We are sorting out the kinks and learning how to make all the ideas that we have happen for real, which will be no surprise to anyone who knows how. It's a work in process. I think the thing that has been most difficult to sort out is how to do this without seeing faces and without that relationship that comes with sharing food and conversation that normally is in a hum classroom. It feels scary and weird to just be talking into the air. I don't know if people know what I'm trying to know, you know? I know. <laughs> <laughs> As some of you may know, but again, who knows because we can't see your face. Last week, we spent some time thinking about where we are broadcasting from and how the stories and storytellers through this term are connected to this place, to Amasquichi with Sky again. Throughout this term, the one thing that all participants have in common is a connection to this place, with or without hum. Even though the radio can feel like it's just coming from thin air, it's important that we always recognize that the work and learning we do is connected to place and our relationship to it and all living things that share this place with us. If you missed last week's class, you can always check out our blog where we'll upload the shows. And if you don't have access to the computer, let us know. We can get you readings and materials that support our learning. This week, we are starting the first part of a two-part class on Indigenous storytelling. We needed two episodes. Well, actually, we need endless episodes because there is a lot for us to learn when trying to better understand the stories that are Indigenous to this place. Let's start off today's class with some working definitions from some of our volunteers. Indigenous people are often thought of as the people who lived in a country or geographical area prior to the arrival of people from different ethnic origins. Most Indigenous peoples have retained characteristics and cultures that are distinct from other populations. Some examples are the Lakota in America, the Mayas in Guatemala, the Maori in New Zealand, and the Cree in Canada. First Nations, Métis, and Inuit are all included in the term Aboriginal. These are the Indigenous peoples of Canada. These three terms, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, 
represent three distinct groups and are not interchangeable. First Nations is a term used to describe Indigenous peoples in Canada who are not Métis or Inuit. There are 634 First Nations speaking more than 50 distinct languages. First Nations are the original inhabitants of the land that is now called Canada. Métis means a person who self-identifies as Métis. They are distinct from other Aboriginal peoples and are of historic Métis nation ancestry. Being Métis is more than just being of mixed race, French and indigenous. These people formed out of the fur trade in the 19th century. They have a distinct history and culture to them. Thus, to self-identify as Métis, the individual typically has connections to the historic Métis community. Inuit, meaning the people in Inuktitut, are an indigenous group of people, many of which inhabit Arctic regions, including the northern regions of the land now called Canada, Greenland, and Alaska. An Inuit person is called an Inup. BIPOC is an acronym that has become very popular in the last year. It stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. There's a lot of debate around this term, so we have included an article that shares some of that debate with you. You can find it in our blog and in the handouts. You will hear this term come up throughout the course from different people that we interview. It is a new term that comes with significant concerns from the Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities. We should be thoughtful in our own uses, not just of this term, but in all terms that are used to identify people. When possible, it is ideal to try and use more specific terms to, to describe who it is that we are talking about and to honor the language people use to describe themselves. Thank you, Anne, for thinking through those terms and sharing some working definitions with us. Some of us have thought through these terms, and others of us are just being introduced to them. These working definitions are a place to start thinking about what and how we know. Indigenous storytelling is much more than simply Indigenous people telling stories. As you will hear in the upcoming interview with Elder Bonnie, Indigenous storytelling takes many forms, including ceremony, drum making, and through grandmother's tellings. Now these stories are for many uses, such as cultural survival, practical day-to-day -day instruction, and even couples counseling. Let's get to it. In the height of the summer, when the days were still hot and long, I went out to see Elder Bonnie on her land. I have known Bonnie for several years now in different ways and in different places. I reached out to Bonnie to see if she would join HUM 101 on the air. As an elder, she holds knowledge and teaching that is important when thinking about Indigenous storytelling. She was the very first person we talked to about storytelling. This also explains some of the not so great audio as it was my first interview and my first time using the equipment. After exchanging protocol, we sat in her sunroom with her cats and while watching her horses graze, she shared much with me, some of which we are sharing now, and we'll be sharing more from Bonnie next week. So we are, by nature, as Indigenous people, we're storytellers. And you wanted to know about um, 
storytelling for us. There's different types of storytelling in our work because we're an oral society as Indigenous people. The language is very important. And there's a lot of words like Bokotoan, you know, and it has a whole meaning around it, you know, about our relationship, the interconnectedness and, and, and uh, relationship with all living things. And uh, um, um, it doesn't just mean the land or relationship or whatever. There's whole concepts of teaching of, of what that means in our world when you say it. So it's it's very um, the language is very important, um, and with ceremonies and the protocols around the ceremonies and everything. And one of our um, the um, in the Sioux way, uh, one of our uh, uh, ceremonies is we call it the throwing of the ball. You know where we could say a story in terms of teaching. And then you toss it to a person. They would repeat the story, toss it back, and toss it back. And it, you know, it's it it was teaching circles and the repetitiveness and the importance of of understanding the story intimately. Because then you you know the uh, people say, well, that's not the way I heard it or whatever. But overall, the story is the same. The teachings in there are are the same. You know, um, and the story might change a little bit in terms of how we describe it or whatever, but but the overall story, because it documents, especially when it's a story around um, ceremony or around um, how something came to be, like the origins of the um, star blanket or what that means for the Lucy people and, uh, and how we use that. So who is able to, is there a protocol or about who tells stories and which stories? I mean, to me, like for our, around, when it's around our teachings and around uh, ceremony, um, uh, it's important, it's important, uh, how, like if, if you're, going to get teachings about the Inipi, the sweat lodge, then get those teachings from the lodge holder, you know, because that person knows that ceremony intimately and has accepted the responsibility of carrying that ceremony forward for the people, right? Um, and so there's a whole, whole bunch of, it's not just, oh, you do this, 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 you know, um, and so, and it's a, it's a process over time, and it's through stories of that elder talking with you as you're coming and experiencing the ceremony, and we'll teach you about the history of the ceremony and what, what, what you're doing and and, and why and that, and and so for me, it's important like that way. Um, things modernize and. Uh, if somebody, um, like even the story around the hand drum, the story around the drum, and 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 there's stories around that animal and that standing one, the, the tree, that offered their lives to create this drum. 
and there's a whole process and then a ceremony of birthing that drum after it's it's put together and and uh, um, and and wake up its voice hey and then how to look after it um, so if you're somebody's going to teach you that process or anything they should know that process and be a, a, a drum carry themselves we're all storytellers and we all have a story and one of the things for me is uh, when people can get to the point of telling their own story um, that that's real healing that's real healing because you there because when we put that out there and tell our own story um it's not reliving trauma or whatever it's like no we you know when we can tell our story in terms of just our journey you know um and and how how we got detached with our own spirit and then how we find our way back, you know? Um, uh, because life is messy and we all get detached at times and we all get tested at times and everybody has a story and others can learn from us sharing our stories. I think we're all storytellers and we all have a story to tell. And if we go back to that basic teaching that, that uh, You know, we're born to make mistakes, and it's what we do. What we do with them. So everything, like every, everything in my life, like my story, the not so good, the bad, the ugly, ugly. Um, I am grateful for because there's a balance. Because I have in my process and through learning, through storytelling and ceremony and everything, um, it's I, what I. I figured out what I could take from that and learn from that in a good way. And it's, it's uh, made me a stronger person, spiritually. Through stories, you nurture people. Um, when you can tell your own story, it's part of your healing journey. It's, it's part of you, your own medicine. We think of medicine, when I say medicine, it's part of, like it's helped, like through the story, so through storytelling and that. Um, I've learned so much more about myself, about Mother Earth, about uh, um, the Star Nation and about my relationship to that, that that all of that has, it's been medicine for me. Like I work with people that struggle with addictions and uh, I use ceremony and everything to help physically cleanse their bodies, um, but also spiritually and mentally and emotionally. And that's that place to let go and everything. And, uh, um, and a lot of that, and talking and teaching the protocols in that is through story and through um, it's that becomes their medicine. They, they need they need those thoughts and teachings planted in to help them reframe their thinking and uh, 
you know, so it's medicine in so many ways, so many ways. Our elders will do teaching circles um, that, and, and counsel couples like in that teaching circle without singling them out or anything, you know, like a, that's a real gifted storyteller when they can, you know, uh, uh, they can get the point across to the people in the circle, you know, without singling them out or whatever. And, you know, and you, and you see lots of times I'll see, and, and I can, um, I can really call people on like some of the women I work with just in story and in general. And I'll share a story about, uh, something in my past or experience or whatever and what I learned from it and they'll know right away they you know they'll know right away and uh, um, you know and and that in itself is is a medicine because uh, the, the minute we start to you did this you and, and do the, the, the projecting and blaming everything nobody's the people aren't going to learn our, our children don't learn, you know, um, but you can, if you can sit down and talk about, a, a, like, and through a story and everything, you're going to, I used to come to um, an elder here uh, years and years ago when I was uh, first, um, first starting to engage in in ceremony, and uh, I, I was preparing myself for uh, my second compilation, I think. And I, 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 you know, you can't pass tobacco over the phone or whatever. So I came tearing out here and went and saw the elder, and I just had a couple of questions. I, I, no, it's an all day process. And in my mind, I've got this tape playing going. Okay, I still have to go get groceries and I still have to, you know, blah, 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 before the kids get over at school. And, it, you know, and and uh, it taught me, um, you know, to slow down because I was going to get what I need. He was just going to tell me a story about when he had a similar situation in his, you know, preparing for his ceremony or whatever. And then it was up to me to get what I needed out of that story. So then it's up to me to shut off that tape playing and open up my mind and my heart and listen to the story and really understand the story and, and reflect and pull out and what I need is there. Yeah. But it's like I remember times in my own impatience and everything. Oh, just a yes or a no. That's all I needed to know, you know? <laughs> and that's my running around doing a hundred things and becoming a human doing instead of being a human being and just being and and learning not only is it a yes or a no but why it's a yes you know that's what you get out of the stories elder bonnie helps us better understand how indigenous storytelling is not just entertainment but also a teacher and a healer we invite you to tune in next week as Elder Bonnie shares the story of star blankets with us. If you want more information or to participate in activities and story sharing, check out our blog at hum 
101onair.wordpress.com or give us a call or text at 587-709-5472. If you don't have access to a computer and or the internet, let us know. We can get you all the things we're posting online. We spoke to Josh Longdo about his journey as an Indigenous playwright who has been actively exploring his role as an Indigenous man, writing and sharing stories in a professional context with an audience that is often not Indigenous. As you're about to hear, this is something he's thought a lot about. So just if we could start off, um, I'm wondering, Josh, if you could introduce yourselves to us. Sure. Um, Buju, Josh Longdo, Indishnikaz, Saugeen, First Nation, and Don Jamba. So that's just greetings, hello. Uh, I am called Josh Longdo, and I come from Saugeen, First Nation, which is out in Treaty Number 72 territory. And I've been living here as a guest uh, on Treaty Number Six territory. Um, I would say Miskwichiwaskahagen, but I grew up in St. Albert. Now I live in Miskwichiwaskahagen. I don't know what St. Albert is called yet. Um, this just hasn't come across my my studies yet. But yeah, that's just how I introduce myself. Um, I'm an MFA theater practices candidate in the drama department. I'm in my second year. I'm studying Indigenous playwriting and Indigenous theater creation methodologies. I'm predominantly a playwright and I'm also the youth outreach coordinator at Workshop West Playwrights Theater where we teach playwriting to young aspiring high school teens. There's a plug for you. So our theme this term is storytelling. And I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the ways you tell stories as a playwright. Yeah, so I guess in terms of why I tell stories, it's a pretty, it's a pretty big question, actually. Just I, I feel compelled to. I feel like I have to. I feel like it's always been within me. And I mean, I, I truly believe we as human beings are creators, are storytellers ourselves. It's how we... I guess, own our knowledge, own our information. For me, um, it's, it's something a lot deeper. Like I, when I decided to commit to playwriting slash storytelling, um, I, I realized the more I committed to it, the more I was committing to a really, really, really big task. Because the more I kind of pursue my studies, the more I realize, you know, to use academic language, the, the theoretical lens uh, the indigenous theoretical lens of storytelling, how storytelling is being, storytelling is knowledge, storytelling is resilient, storytelling is um, decolonizing, storytelling is indigenizing. When we talk about storytelling, I've come to embrace, it's not just me telling the story I've made up or writing this play or this idea created by myself. There's a wall of support behind me and that wall is my culture, that wall is my ancestors, that wall is the seven generations before me who prayed for me before I was even a thought to anybody. Um, and kind of passing it forward being like, well, when I write and create stories for today, um, I'm honoring their legacy, I'm bringing our boys back into the mainstream uh, whatever the mainstream is, whatever we want to call that. And um, and I'm striving for seven generations from now um, 
people, you know, after I leave this world, will live in a much better world and a much more resilient world. Because um, I, I see my goal as a storyteller as healing, healing what was, and, um, and br- I guess bringing that pain, but also that that healing, um, that healing energy into contemporary times, so we can move forward. You speak of yourself um, and and indigenous storytelling, um, and I'm wondering if you could tell us what it means to be an indigenous storyteller, if there is something that is unique there um, that, that we should know and that we want to know. Yeah, for sure. The, um, I guess the most immediate thought I have to that is what makes an indigenous storyteller an indigenous storyteller is how stories were slash are valued in many, many indigenous cultures. And I mean, each, each tribe has their own way of doing storytelling, but I guess in a general sense, storytelling is connected to ceremony. It's connected to growth. It's connected to learning. So like, you know, the stories that were passed down from generation to generation were mistakes that were made and learning that occurred in the tribe with certain people. Um, And that's how their way of living keeps moving forward, that knowledge transfers downwards from, you know, hundreds of thousands of years in the past. Um, And then we talk about, you know, Western academia may call them myths, um, but like, you know, or legends, but like the indigenous ways of knowing have stories that, you know, are creation stories or stories about like, um, you know, the raven giving light to the world or stories of the little people by the river. Um, And those aren't just folklore those aren't just those aren't just fables they're actually like part of the fabric of society it's how they view wisdom it's how they it it was kind of their science it's how they view the world it's how it teaches them how to live i think that's the big the big difference is when we talk about indigenous storytelling the stories really are highlighting how we should live as human beings not should as in a top-down process, but it was often teachings about this is how we treat each other as human beings. This is how we show respect. This is how through, I don't know, making mistakes, new knowledge comes out of it. Whereas I would argue, you know, a lot of Western stories are just entertainments and they're just to like amuse certain classes of Um, if I could ask then, from a Western perspective, um, often people kind of, uh, or I hear the kind of the essentializing of a digital storyteller and elder kind of being merged into one. Now we've had some conversations um, in the past about what is that difference. Do you think there's something you could uh, share with us about understanding or the difference between elder and indigenous storyteller, just so people don't have that confused in their minds. Yeah, definitely. Because I'll I'll state very very clearly, I'm not an elder. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm a, a relatively young dude still on my path. Um, when we talk about like elders, elders contain some of those bigger, bigger, deeper rooted stories that I was kind of alluding to earlier. Like, you know, often 
there uh, and every tribe approaches it differently but when young people are raised grow up you know live in their indigenous societies you know when they enter that final phase that wisdom phase that's often when they become elders or like they've been given teachings where the society and their their group now sees them as an elder as a knowledge keeper um and like i i don't really consider myself a knowledge keeper. Like I, I just know what I know. And um, when I when I write stories, um, you know, I, I don't know my people's creation stories. And even if I did, it's not necessarily my story to tell. You know, that's a story reserved for likely elders who've been given the full story, who've been given permission and the deep teachings behind that story. Um, Whereas, you know, I, I, when I create stories or when I write plays, it's often from me, from my positionality. Um, I may be inspired by things I see in the outside world, but at the end of the day, it comes from me. Whereas, you know, when you talk about stories that elders give, it's often to bring large groups of people together and to pass on really, really specific teachings, um, if that makes sense. I recently read your paper, Positionality, Creation, and the Indigenous Self. Um, you just mentioned positionality, which is great, because that's exactly where I'm headed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I very much enjoyed the paper. I learned a lot. Um, but I do have a question, a specific question. But before we get to that, I'm wondering if you could explain a bit what positionality means. Yeah, absolutely. Because I... I find, I find it's a very, very, very important term. And it's a term that I've wrestled with for the last five or six years. And it's a term I feel pretty comfortable defining now because I've, I've lived and learned positionality quite well as the paper, I think quite, it's, for those of you who haven't read the paper, it's a very open, honest paper about mistakes I've made in terms of positionality, but also realizing the importance of positionality. But, Definition, yes, start there, Josh. So basically, um, you are centering yourself in relationship to other people. So when I started this little interview here, I, I introduced myself in Anishinaabe. Um, I, I introduced what nation I come from. I could have taken that a step forward and said, you know, my pronouns are he and his. Um, you know, my, my mom's side of the family comes from the Irish-British side. I, I could have talked about all my ancestors, which actually I should have, now that I think about it. Um, and then, like, if you identify as, like, basically whatever you identify yourself as with, that's how you position yourself. And, and it's done when you sit in a circle with people and, you know, often we'll go around the circle and one by one we'll introduce ourselves. We'll say who our ancestors are, where we come from if we want to go there, what our academic background is, how we identify as a professional or whatever you want to share. Because what, what that does is it locates yourself in relationship to everybody else. Um, and you can't really hide parts about yourself. And you also are being upfront with your whole self. You're showing up as your whole self, to use Brene Brown language. Um, <laughs> and... Um, and that's important because if you're doing research or you're writing for a community or you're reaching out to people that aren't from your direct positionality, you need to be able to locate 
who you are in relation to who they are, because then you're recognizing the differences between the two of you, and you're also recognizing where the similarities might be. But what's important is recognizing those differences, because when you, when you recognize difference from your own positionality, then you're already opening up the possibility of collaboration, of like open, honest discussion. Um, yeah, again, kind of a long definition, but I hope that makes sense. It does, thank you. So in the paper you write, in every play I write from an indigenous perspective, my practice as a playwright must always be rooted in positioning myself within the play. By doing so, I avoid extractivism and create a sovereign space of irreconcilable aboriginality for myself and my people. Do you think you could tease that out for us a little bit? I absolutely could. That's several terms I was really inspired by from other papers I read. So irreconcilable spaces of aboriginality is from, I believe it's, I believe David Garneau was the author. He's a Métis scholar and he talks about how indigenous people and you know now the conversation is very rightfully extended to BIPOC people but our communities and all of those communities need spaces where we can work out our stuff without settler interference we create the space where we can speak to each other as Anishinaabe people as Cree people you know as black people without settlers coming in and trying to say well can't believe I'm saying this, but hey, all lives matter. Or like, hey, you know, what about my narrative? It's like, no, your narrative doesn't matter right now. We need to own our narrative. We need to create a space so we can define our narrative because your narrative has defined ours for really, really, really long. So David Garneau argues that that's crucial in Indigenous sovereignty and BIPOC sovereignty moving forward. So that's that term. And when I talk about my playwriting and my positionality and avoiding extractivism. You know, uh, there's tons of studies of ethnographers going into tribes and quote unquote studying them, or, you know, people going in and finding these artifacts and um, kind of naming the artifacts without understanding the sacredity between them or, or uh, underneath them. So, you know, there's, there's this really, really negative view of academia from a lot of Indigenous communities and from a lot of, you know, BIPOC communities who are used to settlers coming in, trying to be open with them and saying, we just want to learn, then just literally taking all their research, never having any relationship with that group, uh, never beginning in a place of relationship, and then just kind of owning the research as their own, whereas they don't recognize them as basically equivalent in contributing to the research. This is top-down hierarchy. Um, and especially in theater, that's quite a risky endeavor because, you know, we have evidence of settlers writing about Indigenous communities without having ever spoken to anyone from the community. And luckily, a lot of those plays are now kind of being analyzed for that extractivism, you know, a big, big famous one was The Ecstasy of Rita Joe. I'm looking at it right now on my big shelf full of plays. I studied that when I was 18 and something never felt quite right about that. And it's because this settler literally just wrote about an indigenous story without talking to anyone from the community or having any relationship with the community. And it kind of shows, there's kind of this hollowness in it. So 
in my learning, that's something I really, really strive to avoid. The last thing I want to do is write about something that becomes extractivist. And I avoid that by showing up as myself and positioning myself as I'm an Anishinaabe uh, person from Saugeen First Nation. I've got these other ancestors that I'm also learning about. And um, that way I can show up and have relationship to community. And if I'm going to write about something that inspires me, say like I'm writing a play right now uh, that's based on several true stories. Uh, the play is not those stories, but it's inspired by the stories. And, you know, my way in as well, I, it's about a 17-year-old Indigenous teen. And my way in as well, I was a 17-year-old Indigenous teen. I know what it feels like to be a teenager, you know, being angry with your parents and having cultural identity issues, like do I commit to this, do I not commit to this? And that's my way into telling that story, rather than writing from the, the, writing the story as is from the inside, like from these actual true stories it's based on. Um, yeah, so that's, there's a lot to unpack in that sentence and I'm realizing now as I, as I do that. <laughs> it's an incredible sentence. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you um, so much. I was quite overwhelmed by it and, uh, and it made me think um, in ways that I haven't. And I like to have my brain get stretched um, and it's ran through obstacle courses. It's a great feeling. As you could hear, uh, my brain was stretched. Thank you. Thank you for doing that for us, Josh. Now I'm gonna pause the conversation there this week, but next week we continue with Josh about what it is like to perform his play, Rocco and Nakota. In the meantime, check out the paper Josh wrote. You can find it online at hum101onair.wordpress.com. Or if you need, we are happy to get you a printed copy. Just let us know. You can reach us at 587-709-5472 or by email at hum101 at ualberta.ca. To help us better understand the unique experiences and stories that have shaped us and our ways of thinking and learning as different participants of this course, we are hoping you will join us in a little creative exercise. If you look in your monthly kits, which can be found online, you will find some directions on writing an I am from poem inspired by Appalachian poet George Ella Leon. If you do participate, please share with us and let us know if we can share it on the air. In the meantime, here is one from Morningstar. Where I'm from. I am from crowded living rooms with half full cups of coffee, cigarette smoke lingering around windows and the sound of chickadees in the morning. I am from the tenderness of fried moose sweet with onions and the toughness of cold toast that was left on the counter. I am from the place of eavesdropping on adult conversations, being called a magpie for hanging around spaces I shouldn't. I am from the soft sound of my cookum's voice and the comforting twang of a slightly out-of-tune old acoustic guitar. I am from old cowboy boots and thin aprons. I am from the smell of deer hide work gloves and white shell necklaces paired with low-rise blue jeans. To end today's class, I spoke with Tanya Ball a Michif woman from Winnipeg, Manitoba in Treaty 1 territory. She's currently living in Amiskwichi, Wiskigan, where she is doing her PhD in Native Studies and teaching in the Library and Information Studies program at the U of A. Tanya reflects on the role of relationality in Michif's trickster stories, 
stories is intergenerational and interdimensional communication within the family and the ever-evolving interpretation and application of story. Hello, everyone. <laughs> My name is Tanya Ball. I use the pronouns she, her. I identify as a midshift or Métis. I like to use the word midshift. I like to use the word midshift because that's the way that we describe ourselves. Um, so I'm a midshift woman. I was born in Treaty One territory, which is Winnipeg, but my family is actually from a small town at the base of like Manitoba called St. Ambrose. I have been living in Treaty Six territory, which is Treaty Six and Métis Region Four in in Edmonton, Alberta, for about, oh gosh, it feels like forever, but I've been a guest here for about 13 years. Happy to be here still. So I have a really intricate relationship with storytelling. I work with stories pretty much every day of my life. For example, I am a co-host of a podcast called Miss Diane Iskwayak, which is it translates into book women in Cree. There's actually no word for librarian in Cree, so it's book woman. But the three of us, Sheila LaRock, Kayla Larson, and myself, we're all trained librarians, and we started this podcast about Indigenous storytelling. I'm also doing my PhD at the Faculty of Native Studies in the University of Alberta. I'm studying a lot about storytelling and then that's relationship to relationality and how we kind of connect to each other, both human and non-human relations. Uh, I focus mostly on my family stories from St. Ambrose, which tend to involve, uh, they're more like trickster stories. I'm still kind of unpacking them all, but we have a character, it's called uh, Ligiab which in Michif kind of translates over to the devil. It's uh, this genderless character that kind of comes in and teaches us all these lessons and different stories. So I'm doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And of course, I teach at the library school at the University of Alberta as a sessional instructor. So I got to teach about storytelling in that aspect as well. So I just wanted to pick up on one of the things you uh, mentioned earlier around your family stories and your research, and that was the um, devil as trickster. And uh, I remember when we were talking earlier, you mentioned something about actually sort of reframing the trickster as an empath in some of the stories um, that you have encountered. Can you speak a bit more to the role of the trickster in the stories that you know and how you are thinking about them a little bit differently? Absolutely. So I'm, I'm just kind of getting into this, these ideas and exploring kind of what they mean. But I'm starting to read about Black Elk, who was a trickster character. So the thing about stories is that they all have elements of truth. Of course, there's metaphors and all these different lessons in them. But something that I'm starting to think about is that Yes, we have these characters in our stories, but we also have these characters in real life as well. So, I mean, I've known a lot of people who are pretty empathic and also kind of trickstery, but it's, I'm starting to reframe the word trickster because when you think of trickster, you, you almost assume that they're meant to trick you, which has a lot of negative connotations to it. And in our family stories, and I know a lot of other trickster stories that I've heard that they're not really trying to trick you, but they're basically there to remind you of what's important. And what's important obviously changes from person to person. But yeah, I feel like the role of the trickster is to show you the different paths. 
And it's up to you as the listener and as the person, you know, narrating your own personal story, your life story on which path that you want to take. And the trickster never really tells you, hey, you need to go here. It, it, they just, you know, present the options and it's up to you and your own free will to kind of do that. You know, I, I'm starting to think of them and this is the title. The title of my PhD is called Lichiab et Ma Cousine. <laughs> I, I think I got the mischief right, but it basically means uh, the devil's my cousin mm. and the devil is our relationship. They are our, you know, mean matey auntie that kind of shows up and tells you, hey, you need to smarten up. You know, we all have those family members that are just there to tell you the truth and tell you, hey, you might be going down a dark path here. Obviously, your choices are up to you, but Yes, I'm trying to, I'm starting to think of uh, tricksters more as a relation instead of someone that's an external entity that's trying to force you to do things you don't want to do. The trickster story that I really like is, is called The Farmer. And these are stories that my grandpa used to tell my mom's generation. Usually in St. Ambrose, obviously it's very small community and the lights would often go out. They would have no electricity. So my grandpa would gather all the kids in the village and sit them down and say, it's storytelling time. And he would sit them down and tell them different stories. And they all tended to be ghost-like stories, ghost stories, scary stories. You know, when you're a kid and the lights go out, you put out your flashlight and try to spook everyone. Kind of like that. <laughs> so one of my favorites that... I actually heard my mom. My mom told me these stories. But it's called The Farmer. And the story goes like this. There's a farmer in the village. And the farmer has prized horses. And these are the most beautiful horses that you'd ever seen. Big, gigantic. And what the farmer would do is he would, you know, comb through the horses to make sure that they're, they maintain their beauty. And of course, like when the horses get knotted, you know, it's a mess. So he takes care of these horses, really. And he just spent so much time with these horses and brushing through them that he would often miss church on Sundays. So the Catholic priest, noticing that he's missing these masses, came up to the farmer and basically told him, hey, what's going on? You're missing church on Sunday. You got to get, you got to get back here. It's not a good idea. You're going down a dark path. And the farmer's like, yeah, 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 okay, okay. And what ended up happening is he would spend a certain amount of time brushing through these horses, but as the days passed, he started to notice that there's more, there's little knots inside the horse's mane. And you know, when you're brushing hair, there's lots of knots. You spend a little bit of extra time trying to, you know, weed through them. And Every single day that he's brushing through them, there's more and more knots, which means that he had to spend more time kind of going through them. And of course, again, he missed church on Sunday. So the priest kind of warmed him again, saying, hey, this is, this is bad. You got to get your butt in church. And this happened for a little bit. Um, and it, it, the farmer just started getting more and more confused, but, you know, just still brushing these horses, making sure that they're beautiful and well taken care of until one day, he was walking over to the barn and you know, you know when you get that sudden urge that something is up, that's your intuition kind of sparking up. He walks towards the, uh, the barn 
and his heart is just beating boom, 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 and beating faster and faster and louder. As his anxiety is kind of growing, he's stepping closer and closer to the barn, starting to sweat a little bit, you know, something's in there. <laughs> That's what he's thinking. So he opens the barn door and he looks up and he sees a giant red horned beast standing next to the horses and tying little knots into the horse's mane. Mm. And that's where the story ends. Now, I love this story. <laughs> I love this story because when my grandpa told it to the kids uh, in the dark, he basically would say at the end, now that's, you got, this is why you have to go into church. Otherwise the devil's going to get you, you know, mm -hmm. using a fear tactic to get, get the kids back in there and make sure that they follow uh, religion, which is pretty common in my grandpa's, in my grandpa's generation. So he has one particular take on the story. And my mom, she's obviously different generations. She has a different take on the story too. She would tell me that the story is about vanity and it's warning against, you know, spending too much time on your looks because of the prized horses and spending lots of times with them. But for me, obviously I am again in another generation and my generation in particular, we're going through a lot of cultural revival, right? So Lots of things that are going down. We're trying to reclaim our language, reclaim our culture and all these other things. So when I hear this story, I and I'm seeing the, the devil, the jab as a trickster, right? So what is the trickster trying to tell us? And for me, the trickster is trying to get the guy or the farmer to spend more time with these horses, right? Because the more knots that are in there, the more time he's gonna spend brushing them out, right? And even just thinking from, because I'm a huge mental health advocate, brushing through horses and that repetitive motion is so calming, right? And Métis people also have a very spiritual connection to horses. So for me, the devil is basically saying, hey, get back here, get back to your culture. This is, this is where you need to be. Mm. And, you know, presenting that option. Of course, it's up to his own free will to decide if he wants to go to church or if he wants to go to the horses. But in the story, he chooses the horses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. There's so much I want to ask you about that, but that's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing it. Um, so I guess one of the threads I would love to pull out of that is you spoke about how the meaning or moral of different stories change across generations, um, how for your mom, it was a cautionary tale about vanity. And to you, it, it speaks to healing and cultural connection. And I'm just wondering if you could speak a bit about how stories have changed over time within your family and also within this practice of storytelling. So there's two different types of stories in Métis storytelling. There are the more traditional stories, which tends to have like more supernatural kind of characters like ghosts in our, in our family anyways, ghosts, um, devils, demons, those kinds of things. They all kind of revolve around uh, Christianity and how we see religion. So that's, I guess I would label them more quote unquote traditional, but there's also personal histories and personal stories, right? So because of the religious context of it and because of the way that my grandpa used to tell the story, my mom's generation is actually really scared. It's, it's they're scary stories. And um, there's a real fear there, right? So I guess in terms of telling things over time, 
my there was a cut in that story where those stories were no longer being told right and so the emphasis i guess had, had shifted from uh the supernatural more supernatural stories over to the personal stories so personal stories i mean we talk about that stuff all the time every time at the dinner table we're talking about um, our cousins our um, grandfathers anybody right and the things that they would do and how we would interact with that and you know laugh about it so i would say over time there's definitely been a shift right yeah and it and so um through your research and also just through your interest are you are you returning to some of these traditional stories um and if so are, you, are those the stories that you're, you're thinking through um, when you talk about, I know you mentioned the first time we talked that uh, you're thinking a lot about mental health and, and healing and connection when you think about storytelling. Are those, are those these personal stories or are you thinking with some of these traditional stories or both? I would say both because, well, let me start with the personal stories or personal histories like that's healing because it, it creates a sense of community and we also get to laugh like Métis people we are the loudest laughers <laughs> you know we have a great sense of humor and that's part of our medicine it's part of our healing so we like to uh, laugh about our different family members and also of ourselves of course and uh, it also connects us in a way so it's a broader sense of who we are and how we interact with each other as our inner culture and I want to point my finger back to the relationality piece, right? So in personal stories and a lot of our stories, you wouldn't really be able to tell this unless you knew in the background, but a lot of our stories, we tell them as if these people are actually alive. Whereas most of the people that we tell stories about have long passed, right? So relationality, it's connecting us together as humans, but also connects us to the plants, the animals, and also our ancestors who are no longer physically present, you know? So that's a, that's a really strong cultural element there. And in terms of the traditional stories, absolutely. I see a lot of revival and things like that happening. And I mean, I'm looking at these stories a lot more because I don't know, there's always been something deep inside of me that's like really drawn to the macabre, but I think the reason why is because I grew up with these stories. And uh, speaking to that sort of um, interdimensional or, you know, relation, relationality across time and space, I, uh, I read your article in t the Talking Dead blog uh, titled Mitchell Storytelling Connecting Us to the Dead. And I was just wondering if you could speak a bit about how storytelling functions in this way, in connecting us to the dead. Storytelling is amazing. It's, it's, just this, it's this really interesting thing. And I, I also, I guess I want to um, talk a little bit about mental health because I'm trying to piece these things together too in my own head. So I'm diagnosed with PTSD and I experience a lot of flashbacks and things like that. So it's almost like you're living in different time areas, right? And this is kind of how storytelling functions in a way, right? So storytelling kind of opens up, it breaks off that linear 
time that we as a Western society tend to follow, right? When we're telling a story, we're transported into a different time. So if I'm telling a story about my grandfather, then he's, he's long past, like I said, but my grandfather then, when we talk about him, he's like, it's reinvigorated. He's still alive and he's still within us. So it's, it's really interesting the way that storytelling allows us to do that, right? Yeah. I'm trying to, like I said, I'm trying to piece these things together, but I guess that's the, that's the way that I'm trying to see it is through the lens of, yeah, you know, kind of, it's kind of like flashbacks when you're transported into a different time and you get to experience things in that way. But it's also, you know, learning lessons about your own life because we're here on this planet to learn specific lessons and the stories actually allow us to engage with that. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to think about um, flashbacks and also um, dreams as well and these, these other conscious and subconscious uh, functions that if we, we think about them, you know, honoring them as what they are, which is often trauma-informed, but also think of them as, as stories and as sort of, like you said, uh, disrupting this, the linear movement of time. I think it's, yeah, it's really interesting to think about how they might function in that way as connecting us to good or bad, <laughs> connecting us to moments um, that have happened or that we fear are gonna happen or to, to people that are with us or no longer with us. I think that's, mm-hmm. I think that's really powerful. Yeah. It's really awesome. You know, storytelling is the best. And dreaming, dreaming, like you said, is also another form of storytelling. If I have a particular dream, then I, I tell my family members about it. They're like, what happened? Tell me everything. Because we see it as having a lot of value, right? Because that's you telling a story to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. And there's lessons in there and things that you need to pay attention to. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's really hard to to separate dreams also from mental health and healing and trauma and all these things that are always operating on our body and our minds as we move through the world. And so I think to be able to approach those as stories that are, you know, deeply informed by relationality, as you said, and these experiences and hopes and dreams, there's a lot to learn from them. Absolutely. Yeah. If you start looking at, and this is the thing too, is in, um, in our, in Métis culture, Métis culture, we approach the world from a holistic standpoint, right? Mm -hmm. I know in more Western society, it's, it's a lot of focus on that mental piece, which is where we kind of run into problems. Um, And I guess that's where my interest is, is in that spirituality piece kind of informing and helping us through these healing like helping us through and going through that healing process that trauma related process because we can't ignore it right we're we're all whole beings and the more that we address the things within ourselves the more that we can you know experience life the way that we're supposed to (laughs) yeah yeah sorry i'm going off on this like mental health tangent but you know i think it, it just informs it and storytelling i mean it's such a great resource for myself on how to navigate the world, really. Amazing. Well, Tanya, thank you so, so much for talking with us and sharing those stories. Um, Thanks for having me. 
Thank you, Tanya. And you can also check out the Book Woman podcast that Tanya is a part of online on Spotify and Apple Music. We have also included a link to the podcast on our website. We are hoping to end our classes with stories from you. There will be guided activities that will lend themselves very well to making stories, such as the I am from exercise we introduced today. Don't forget to check the blog or your handouts, nudge, nudge. But then there are all the other ways of telling stories. If you would like us to read your I am from poem or a different story during the last bit of class, then please send it to us. You can do that by emailing us a typed, scanned, or an audio recording of a story to hum101 at ualberta.ca, leaving a voicemail at 587-709-5472, texting us words, pictures, or audio at 587-709-5472, or mailing a story to hum101 care of CJSR, Room 0-09 Students Union Building, University of Alberta, Edmonton, AB, T6G2J7. A quick reminder that we can send or drop off stamped envelopes if you prefer to use the post, just let us know. Next week, we continue our conversations with Bonnie and Josh, as well as meet Naomi as we continue to learn about Indigenous storytelling. Make sure to set your dial to 88.5 FM and tune in at 6 o'clock PM for another HUM 101 class. Thanks again to Chris Harper and Jason Boris of AG47 for the theme music. And see you next week.